The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning, Springs Church. I have to say, I am excited about Mission Sunday. And I have to echo, like Celeste and Greg did, I am thrilled that this church will begin partnering with Mitt and Maya and the work that we will be doing together, because you'll be a part of it, the work we'll be doing together in Singapore. I've told this story before, but I first met uh, Maya. She was a student at OC, and uh, she walked into my office. Uh, for many of you who don't know, my, I have a role, my role at OC, I'm the director of the Center for Global Missions, so you, now you understand why I'm excited about Mission Sunday. But she walked into my office one day, and she said, hi, my name is Maya, and she said, I want to lead a spring break trip to Cambodia. And I was like, okay. Cambodia seems pretty far away to go over spring break, uh, but I didn't, didn't tell her that exactly. What I did say was, um, you know, I, we've, I want you to be able to to search out tickets, I need to know that we can get there and back and actually be there, you know, the week of spring break, five days, and not miss any class, really. So I gave her that assignment. She goes back, she comes back a few days later, and she shows me we could leave on a Friday afternoon and get back on a Sunday afternoon. And I thought, all right. Okay, so the second hurdle is this. And I don't know why this number came to my, my mind, but I was like, Cambodia is a long ways away just to go for a week, right? To spend that kind of money. You have to show me that it would cost less than $2,000 to go to Cambodia and back. Else, I thought, hmm, in my mind, that was just beyond that was too much money. So she goes, she, she uh, does all the research, she comes back, and we can go to Cambodia, leave on Friday, get back on Sunday, and we can do a five-day, basically kind of VBS camp with young children in Siem Reap, Cambodia, and we could do it for about 1800 bucks. And I thought, this girl has got it going on. <laughs> she was quiet, but she was a leader. She is a leader full of charisma, and full of the Holy Spirit. Then I go to Cambodia, and one day where, the final day we're there doing the VBS, we go out to the, one of the, uh, the villages right outside of Siem Reap, and uh, when we're there, when I go to Cambodia, I meet this guy named Mitt. And Mitt's not quiet. <laughs> Maya, Maya snuck up on me. But Mitt, immediately, you could see he was the MC of the whole camp. He was running the show. He was an amazing leader. He had charisma. And he was full of the Holy Spirit. You could, it was obvious. And one day, outside of Siem Reap in this small village, we had a conversation for about an hour while all the kids were eating. And he was asking me about OC and about graduate school. So I was telling him all about it. And then... Uh, I thought, well, that'll probably never come to pass. 
he lives in Malaysia, it's going to be difficult for him to come over. And at the week after I got back, I, I got an email saying, hey, I'm coming to OC. And I thought, I talked him into coming to OC. <laughs> Little did I know that he and Maya were dating, and that's the, probably the real reason, but I'm still taking credit for it, all right? I'm still taking credit for it. And then there was this opportunity to come and work with the Springs. And he was a little anxious about it. When he got here to Oklahoma Christian, he'd plugged in at another church with their international programs. We felt very, very comfortable. And he knew this was a good opportunity to serve, but he was also a little anxious about it. Just because he'd found a community and he didn't sure, you know, when you go into a new community, you're not sure what that's going to be like. And it just so happens that he and I talked about it. I said, well, here's the thing. You never know what God's going to do when you step out to a new place. And I actually said this. You never know, man. You may come to the Springs and work with us for a year or more. And I know you want to move back to Asia somewhere, and you never know, the Springs, they just might support you and Maya. We actually, we didn't plan that, but we actually talked about this, said, what, what if? And so I'm extremely excited that we're supporting Mitt and Maya going forward in Singapore. And I'm extremely excited that we have seen God's grace at work in their lives and that we'll continue to experience that God's grace at work in their lives and in our lives and in the church in Singapore. In the book of Acts, the early church in some ways, in some ways bigger than what we experience, has experienced that same work of God's grace. They've experienced it in their lives. In fact, the book of Acts is about this unfolding of God's grace that they're experiencing. In Acts 11, our text for today, and we're going to jump around and there's going to be lots of different texts today, but I hope you can follow along. In Acts 11, starting in verse 19, it says, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. But some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and to began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. God's people had been experiencing something new in this narrative that Luke tells. I mean, the Jews always knew on some level they were God's people. Now, this may sound odd to us, but because in ancient Near Eastern culture, Gods are regional, and gods are ethnic. So you have the god of the Egyptians, the god of the Romans, the gods of the Greeks, the god of the Jews, the god of the Babylonians. So, of course, 
the God of the Jews is doing something with the Jews, but they're experiencing something new. They're experiencing Gentiles coming in. I can't tell you how radical a notion that is in the first century. This is why we sing Jesus is Lord of all and why that's important, because in the first century, to be Lord of all was a kind of a radical idea, at least from a religious perspective. Now, up to this point, what they experienced being new was the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch, who was a God-fearing person, and Cornelius, who was a Gentile, but he was God-fearing. So, remember, Peter was a little unsure about this whole Cornelius thing. Remember, he walks into Cornelius, he's like, I've had this vision, and this vision told me, you know, what, what I've always called unclean, uh, I should not call unclean, and you know it's against our rules and our regulations and our customs for me to be in your presence. So Cornelius, what do you want? Right? If you, you need to hear that in that text. Peter is quite like, I'm here and I don't want to be here, and you, so what do you want? And then Peter has this moment where he says, I now realize what God is doing when Cornelius tells his story. But with the Ethiopian eunuch and Cornelius, these are God-fearing people. So even though the church is struggling, Jewish Christians are struggling to accept, is God, what's God doing? How can non-Jewish people, how can they become Christians, right? Now, because Stephen has been stoned and because the church is being persecuted and is scattered all over the place, they're scattered they end up getting scattered all over the Mediterranean. And our text this morning says that they end up going and they preach among the Jews. Right? Hey, the Messiah has come, which makes sense. The Messiah has come. They don't expect Gentiles to even know what the word Messiah means. But it says there's a few that went to Antioch and a few people they were from Cyprus and Cyrene, they began, it's almost like they don't know any better. You're only supposed to go to the Jews, but they don't know any better, and they just start telling all these Greeks. They say, Jesus is risen from the grave, and he is Lord of all. And to everyone's surprise, they actually believe. So the church in Jerusalem hears about this, the mother church, and they begin to wonder, who are these unauthorized preachers going to the Greeks? Did these Greeks really believe? I mean, and is God really accepting Greeks? Like the God of the Jews, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is he really accepting these Greek people. And so in verse 23 in chapter 11, it says, when Barnabas arrived and saw that the grace, saw the grace of God, what it had done, he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with all of their hearts. He saw 
what the grace of God had done. And he gets there and he says, wait a minute. I've experienced this before. He gets there and he sees what God is doing among the Greeks and he goes, time out, time out, wait. I've seen this before. I've experienced this before. Remember, Barnabas is sent from Jerusalem, so this is at least what he's experienced. If you go back to chapter 4 and verse 32, it says this, all the believers, this is in Jerusalem by the way, all the believers were one in heart and mind and no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. And with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of Jesus, the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in all of them, there was no needy person. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and, bought and brought their money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Did you hear what was right in the middle of that? Right in the middle of that whole section, it says... Uh, it says, and God's grace was so powerfully at work among all of them. In chapter 11, it says, when Barnabas arrived, he saw the grace of God at work among them. And he was ecstatic. He goes, wait a minute. I've seen this before. And he gets so excited that he says, hey, 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 trust me, I've seen this before. Stay with the Lord. Stay with the Lord. You don't understand what's about to happen, but stay with them. And he encouraged them to stay with the Lord. And then it says in verse 24, it says this. It says that Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. The Lord added to their number. And as Barnabas was with them and saw how many more people were being added over and over and over again, he says, wait a minute. I've seen this before. If you go back in chapter 2 of Acts, it says this, in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread. This is in Jerusalem, by the way, after Peter's sermon. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who was in need. Every day they continued to meet in the temple courts together. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And Barnabas says, I've seen this before. And actually, if you go on to chapter 5, where Barnabas is a part, is already mentioned in chapter 4, 
Chapter 5, verse 14 says this, Nevertheless, more and more women and men believed in the Lord and were added to their number. This is in Jerusalem as well. Not only has he heard about this, I've actually seen it happen. So Barnabas goes to check out this group of Greeks who've been converted. He's sent by the church in Jerusalem, and he gets there, and he sees the grace of God at work in their lives. And then he sees how many people are being added to their number. And he says, one more time, he says, wait a minute. I actually know what to do now. I actually know what should be done. So if you go back to chapter 2, verse 41, it says, those who accepted their message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is in Jerusalem. And it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer. And then in chapter 4, it says this, Beginning in verse 32, all the believers were one in heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared with everyone they had, and with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord, and God's grace was so powerfully at work with all of them. He remembers this, and he goes, I know what to do. God's grace is working among them. God is adding to their numbers. I know what to do. So then in verse 25 in chapter 11, it says this, then Barnabas, he went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. And the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. He says, I've seen this before. I've seen when God's grace is at work and when God is adding more to their numbers, I know what to do. So he goes and he goes and gets Saul. And he brings Saul back to Antioch and for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul teach. They teach what the apostles teach. Because once grace of God has already worked, and God adds to their number, he knows that in Jerusalem that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And they were so devoted in Antioch, this is what strikes me, this is the first time that anyone in the world was called a Christian. They were first called Christians in Antioch. They were so devoted to the apostles' teaching in their daily lives that outsiders called them Christians. Christians didn't call themselves Christians. It was outsiders. It says, oh, those are people who are Christians. They're Christ followers. There was something about the way they lived their lives. There's devotion to the apostles' teaching, that it manifests itself to the world in ways that the world actually gave them a name in order to understand what was going on. But then while he was there teaching for a year, 
Verse 27, it says, During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that there was a severe, would be a severe famine that would spread all over the Roman Empire. This happened during the reign of Claudius. And Barnabas, when he hears this, he goes, wait a minute. I know what this looks like. I know what was taught. I know how this is to be handled and lived out. So in chapter 2, go back to chapter 2, verse 44 and 45. It says, And all the believers were together and held everything in common. They sold property and possessions and gave it to anyone who had need. And then in chapter 4, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that they had any possessions of their own, but they shared everything they had. And with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerful at work on all of them that there was no needy person among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put, the, put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Barnabas says, wait a minute, I know what this looks like. I know what this is going to look like. Because he himself had experienced it in Jerusalem. Is that when you devote yourselves to the apostles' teaching, this is what life looks like. It looks like sharing possessions and giving generously as you are able. So in verse 29 of chapter 11, it says this. After they heard this word from Agabus about this famine that was going to be all over the Roman Empire, it says the disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Now what's interesting, we've been following along Barnabas, jumping back and forth between what he's experiencing in Antioch and what he's experienced in Jerusalem. But what's interesting about this, the reason Barnabas says, wait a minute, I've experienced this, wait a minute, I've heard about this, wait a minute, I know what this looks like, I know what we need to do, is because if you go back to chapter 4, when it says, for time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sale and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Verse 36 says this, and Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money, and he put it at the apostles' feet. Isn't it striking? They send Barnabas to check out this very sketchy report. And Barnabas sees the work of God's grace. 
He sees God's adding to their number. He says, wait a minute, I know what to do now. We need to bring in Saul so we can teach the apostles. And they teach for an entire year. And the result of the teaching is that when there is a need, they gather up all their possessions, what they're able to, and they help. When you devote yourself to the apostles' teaching, this is what life looks like. In Acts 2, in Acts 4, in Acts 11. The grace of God was working among them. God was adding to their number. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching of the breaking of bread. And what that ended up doing when they did that was that they shared their goods with one another. They sent it to someone else. Oh, and by the way, not only had Barnabas experienced this and himself heard the teaching and sold the field and gave money away to help, he was the one that brings the help back to Jerusalem, and then eventually he becomes a missionary with Saul, with Paul. And it's this kind of generosity which makes him becoming a missionary, Barnabas, it makes it possible. Not only did he experience the teaching and give, he was then sent and others gave. Korea was a tough nut to crack in terms of Christian mission. The peninsula was mountainous and hard to get to and it was a pretty closed off country for about 1,700 years. Now, some Christian thought arrived in Korea about 1603, but it wasn't really until 1784 when a Korean student was studying in China and he was baptized by Catholic priests, Jesuits, and he went back to Korea wanting to start a church, and he did. But... Persecution came because the church didn't allow veneration of ancestors. And that was really big in Korea at the time. And so, foreign missionaries didn't even really come in. They were persecuted quite a bit. And foreign missionaries finally came in in 1884. But by 1945, at at the end of the Japanese colonization... And the extreme oppression that the Japanese had uh, applied upon the Koreans, not only just the Korean people, but Christians in particular, there were only 350,000 Christians in 1945. But after World War II, the church grew in explosive ways, particularly in South Korea, reaching... 1.2 million Christians, so in 1945, there were 350,000. By 1965, there was 1.2 million Christians. By 1985, there were 10 million Christians. And by 2010, there were 15 million Christians in South Korea. There's only a, there's 48 48 and a half million people in South Korea. 
15 million are Christians. 31% of the people in South Korea are Christians. In just about 60 years. And by the 2000s, South Korea became, get this, in 2000, in the, in the, or the early 2000s, South Korea became the second largest mission-sending, missionary-sending country in the world. Out of 15 million Christians, 21,500 Koreans were sent as foreign missionaries to about 175 countries. In 2015, that number has grown from 21,500 Korean missionaries to 27,205. This is not short-term missionaries. These are long-term missionaries. And by the way, Korea is roughly the size, land-wise, of the state of Kentucky. Up until recently, South Korea, per capita, was the number one mission-sending uh, country in the world. I experienced this. I got to Uganda in the mid-2000s, and not knowing this information, one day this South Korean man shows up at our church asking to work with us. And I thought, I didn't even know there were that many Christians in South Korea. And here's what a Korean Christian says, why? That in 100 years, they went from being scarcely Christian to the second largest foreign mission-sending nation in the world. One, the Lord added to their number greatly. Two, the Korean church is committed to the apostles' teaching in Scripture. They have this commitment that comes from Confucius to read, reread Scripture over and over again and memorize it. And get this. The vast majority of Christians have this tradition in South Korea to go to church every day before they go to work. So at 5 a.m., you will find Christians in churches praying and often receiving callings from God to go do mission work. And then the third thing he says is this. They've the Lord has added to their numbers. Two, they're committed to the apostles' teaching. And three, Koreans give an enormous amount of money to send a huge portion of their Christian population outside of Korea. When they read and pray, it translates into giving and going. The only reason that Korea, South Korea is not the largest sending nation is because America is, but we have 300 million people. They have a little under 50 million. It's just by volume. And so here's what I learned from the Korean church. In just a very short time, really about 60 years, from going to having almost no Christians at all to having, sending the, almost the vast majority of, of, of uh, any, their second most uh, mission-sending nation in the world, is that what the Koreans have learned 
when God's grace is at work among them, and God is adding to their number, and they are devoted to the apostles' teaching, and they end up giving, what they understand about the Christian life is that the church is not for herself. If you don't hear anything else today, hear this. The church is not for herself. And what that means for you and I is that you are not for yourselves. Your gifts, your talents aren't for yourself. Your relationships aren't for yourself. This community is not, it is a benefit to you, but it's not for yourself. Your money, your money and my money is not for ourselves. So we must continually remind ourselves that today's the day, maybe more than any other day, that the church is not for herself. Our missionaries, Paul and Carol Brazel, who live in Belgium, Don and Cindy Orcasi, who are in Germany, Brett and Kelly Schreck and Jamie Boyles, who are in Rwanda, Paul and Suzanne Whitmire, Cross and Crown, and now Mitt and Maya Vikraman in Singapore. They are our Barnabases calling out to us, saying, I see the grace of God at work in you. God is doing something among you, and you are committed to the apostles' teaching. And so remember, you and your money and your gifts and your talents, they are not for you, they are for the world. So today we've given and we give to support our missionaries because the church is not for herself. Let's stand.